without the help of both of these persons, Joanne and Dr. Chang, I probably would be dead by now. And I'm glad I'm not. On this podcast, we share stories about the art of medicine, stories that show how being a doctor is more than the science of diagnoses, tests, and procedures, and that the relationships doctors build with their patients leads to a more satisfying experience for physicians and healthier patients. Every few weeks, we share one of these stories. This week, we have Dr. Judy Jang, who is a nephrologist and dean of the program in liberal medical education at Brown University. We also talk with her patient, Dan, and his wife, Joanne, and hear their experiences in dealing with chronic kidney disease. I'm Viknesh Kasturi. And I'm Alex Homer. And this is Back of the Chart. When you think of the coolest parts of being a doctor, you might envision the chaotic bustle of the emergency room or a surgeon excising a cancerous tumor. But a lot of important medicine happens in the daily grind of trying to make sure things don't get worse. The homeostasis is maintained. And that's what today's episode is about. There's no big dramatic turning point in the story, no cure, no breakthrough. Instead, it's the story of how caring for patients with chronic conditions is a constant process of education, persistence, and adaptation. And undergirding all of this is the question, how do you get patients to follow your treatment plan? Dan is a retired economics professor and someone who has a lot of respect for doctors. He dresses up for all of his doctor's visits. He'll never show up in jeans and a t-shirt. He works hard to follow his primary care doctor's instructions and manage his diabetes. Once, the doctor found a couple of results on his lab to be a bit concerning. Here's Dan. If I'm saying the names right, creatinine level. And the other one is GBFR. EGFR? Right. We're, we're out of whack. So he said, you'd better go to a nephrologist. And I said, can you recommend one? And he said, try Dr. Jang. So that's how I wound up there. At a basic level, kidneys filter out toxins from the blood. If the kidneys aren't functioning perfectly, then you might notice that there are higher levels of waste products in the bloodstream, like creatinine, a waste product of muscle contraction. Also, your kidneys might not be able to filter out as much blood. And so the estimated glomerular filtration rate, EGFR, might be low. Well, I think the thing that I remember most is not so much the substance of what she said, but rather the fact that she took the time needed to get us to the point where we understood what she was saying. And for that, I am always going to be grateful I know I sound like I'm schmoozing the uh, doctor, but <laughs> it's, it's important that, uh, you know, you take the time with the patient. And then she began to talk a little bit about what kidney disease was. And the main message is that it's a progressive disease. One does not get cured of kidney disease, and she also told me that this is an ongoing process. It isn't something that we'll do for a few sessions and then, you know, see if I have a nice life. So I think those were all very good things. It was honest, and she didn't color anything with, you know, a rosy tint. At the end of the first visit, 
Dr. Jang gave Dan and his wife a nutrition pamphlet. It provided them some ideas on how to restrict the amount of potassium in his diet. As Dan's kidneys became progressively more diseased, his body became much worse at filtering out potassium. Altering how much potassium he ate helped counteract that. Immediately after that visit, Joanne knew how she was going to take action. Here's Joanne. It set a trend with me to to change our diet and to look at foods uh, that he could eat um, and to basically cut out the foods that he couldn't eat. I planned my menus around low-potassium diets, but it was a thought process. It's something that we think about all the time. Joanne is a, how can I say it, a potassium fanatic, (laughs) and she monitors that very, very closely. She differentiates between relatively high potassium products, medium potassium products, and low potassium products. And if it hits the high list, I am never going to get it. (laughs) If it's in the middle, sometimes the low ones, yeah, you can go ahead and have that. It's worth noting how seriously Joanne took the recommendation to change Dan's diet. Joanne asked um, at the end of our first visit, well, is there a dietitian that I can talk to? And I said, Yes, there is. The report back that I got from Dan and Joanne the following visit was that Joanne knew more than the dietitian. She went to go see at the hospital and was asking questions totally above and beyond what the the dietitian knew. And so the dietitian said, there's no need for you to come back since you know more than I do. One of the things that Dr. Jang said is that you should forswear eating tomatoes, which I very dearly love and have grown them for years. And I said, I ain't doing that. But I agreed to switch to cherry tomatoes, which I did the following year. And I don't like them as much as I do big tomatoes, but they do the trick. And it hasn't hurt me from a potassium standpoint. So I think future doctors as well as current doctors should be flexible with the idiosyncrasies that their patients have. Even though Dan, thanks to Joanne's help, was one of Dr. Jang's most compliant patients, Dr. Jang continued to carefully watch the lab results and contacted them a couple of times after hours to let them know if there were any hiccups. I had misread a label and made him food that wasn't good for him for a couple of days, and his level went up significantly. So after the blood test, we sat down for dinner, and the phone rang, and it was Dr. Chang. And she said, what are you doing? <laughs> so now every time we have a blood test, we sit down for dinner, and we look at the phone. <laughs> Actually, this was on about the 4th of July of this, this past year, and we had been to a 4th of July party, and I had several alcoholic beverages during the course of the evening and it you know made the creatinine level I guess shoot up very high <laughs> so i heard from the doctor in about 2 days <laughs> these hiccups aside joanne has quite successfully managed dan's diet his kidney disease hasn't gotten worse it's still at stage 3 out of 5 and he continues with activities of his life volunteering weekly at the soup kitchen and spending time with his grandkids i would never have gotten to the point where this is a fairly stable disease that I'm, I'm looking at. Uh, and for that, dear, I am eternally grateful and always will be. Thank you. And I don't think I could have done this without you. Okay. I don't think you could either. 
I, I don't let him in the kitchen I think, for one honestly, thing. Honestly, I think um, I would. Ag- I think I would agree with that. I think you know it's really hard for anyone to be compliant. Um, even when I have to take antibiotics, it's really hard to remember twice a day to take it, and so really to have. Um, the strength and I think, you know, the sensibility to be able to do that all the time and to keep that consistency, that's really difficult. And I think I would agree that perhaps without Joanne's help, you may be on a medication to help bring down your potassium to help control that. But certainly with her help and with you being amenable to following some of the suggestions, we've been able to kind of keep things stable. So the question that begs to be answered is, how do you get all patients to be as compliant as Dan and Joanne? Um, Education, I think, is the main one, um, and really support. So if a patient comes in alone and I sense that they're not as compliant, you know, I always try to get to the root cause of it. Well, what's the reason? Is it because they're working and they don't have time or they don't remember to take that afternoon medication. What is the reason? Another one is involvement of their family. It's easy to not be compliant. I think that's sort of the default road. But if they have someone who's supporting them and really rooting for them, that's helpful. Um, Setting alarms and things like that, you know, really kind of thinking of other creative ways that will get them to be more compliant. And then adverse effects. Are they, you know, are they having nausea when they're taking it? And is that the reason why they don't want to take it? So really trying to find out, you know, what's the problem and why aren't you taking your medications? And, And so those are things that we can try to help with. One, I think that the patient has to be totally aware of what the consequences of not complying with the medication routine would do to him or her. Two, it helps to have a spouse right behind you making sure that you take the meds every day. And by gosh, she sure does. And if I ever miss or she wake, you know, she comes down after I took my meds in the morning in particular and finds a pill on the floor, she'll pick it up or point it out to me and make sure that I take it. (laughs) And I don't mind having it off the floor. Kidney disease is classified into levels one through five, depending on how well the kidney can filter out toxins, the EGFR rate. Once you reach stage five, your kidneys have deteriorated to the point where you need a machine to clean out your blood in a process called dialysis. Right, and dialysis is pretty time consuming. Patients have to come in for sessions that can last up to three hours multiple times a week. You can understand why Dan would want to avoid that. I, I kind of dislike, I've, I've already got a heart stent, and having a device plugged into you to which you have to devote six to ten hours a week is, is kind of disheartening, and I, I didn't want to go through that. Although I have to admit that if those are the only two choices you have, I'll do, darn well do it. <laughs> but it's kind of scary. What I try to do is to start the conversation early, not too early where it's going to freak them out, uh, but early enough and well in advance of when I think they would anticipate it because it's something that they should be asking questions about. It's something they should be educated about, the different types of dialysis. How long does it take? How will this impact my life? There are so many questions, and so I encourage them, you know, to go to the dialysis unit, visit them, talk to other folks who have been on dialysis took her three or four visits before we started talking about dialysis. And she just wanted to introduce us, knowing that someday he probably won't be on dialysis. But it was a gradual approach. Um, you know, it, it, it built as we went along. And for that, I was very impressed. 
I have this conversation all the time, multiple times a day. And everybody deals with it differently. You know, some people usually are in shock. Other people don't want to talk about it. And, and that's fine. I give them a little bit of information and then I try to readdress it. And so my hope is by the time they need dialysis, they're the ones who tell me, I think I need dialysis. I'm not feeling well. I'm ready for it. And um, let's do it. So I think, you know, education is key in allowing patients the time to go through that sort of grieving process and, and shock and really learning about it and acceptance ultimately. Um, when we drive now and we see dialysis centers, Dan's like, oh, look, at there's one close to the house. It's over there. And, of course, Dr. Jang said any, you know, safaris we want to go on and get them done within the next year or two. So, um, you know, we're preparing ourselves for it. Even in the course of this interview, Dan opens up about some of his other fears and concerns about dialysis. And Dr. Jang right away addresses them and proposes some solutions. When I think about it, the only real downside to going on dialysis is that'll cut out the ability for Joanne and me to go to Europe every year, which which we'd, we've done for a long time. And I guess it's kind of hard to find a uh, dialysis center in a foreign country. You probably could in Britain or Canada, but I think if you're in Czechoslovakia, it would probably be very hard to do. So I think that'll cut the, uh, the European tours down. They do do um, dialysis cruises, actually. I don't know if you, if so, if there are cruises to Europe. Okay. And we've not talked about this, but I... I just got a mailing asking if I wanted to be a dialysis doctor on a cruise, but they do offer that okay. as an option where you dialyze when you're cruising and then you can go off on vacation. So there are other options behind that. Mm. Um, you know, Joanne had mentioned home dialysis, which in my heart of hearts, I think um, they would do very well in. That could certainly afford them the opportunity to travel to, to take, you know, the dialysis bags with them and things like that. But, you know, ultimately it's a decision, I think, that we make in conjunction. If they don't feel that it's right for them, then we need to find the next best option that works for them and their lifestyle. Um, but dialysis by the sea is an option. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> Fair enough. To Dr. Jang, the relationship she has built with Dan and Joanne is relevant not just because they're compliant patients, but also because of how treating chronic kidney disease is emblematic of what it means to be a doctor. You know, they're a good example, I think, of a really great patient-physician relationship. I mean, we harp a lot about that in the PLEMI, and um, we talk about, you know, how to define that. And I think my relationship with them really kind of captures that spirit. You know, you want to convey that to, to students who are going to be doctors. It's not always going to be an easy course, and I think, you know, they are able to testify to that. But you work together. It's teamwork. You shared, I think, some of the fears you had with dialysis. That's not really something that we talk about a lot. I kind of introduced that idea, but we never went more in depth into it. And so I think you know, that to me and hearing that means that we need to talk more about that to, to get you feeling a little bit more comfortable about it or to answer any other questions that you may have. I think when you're a med student, you know, you go from feeling very nervous and um, perhaps occasionally uncomfortable because you don't know 
who you're going to be dealing with or what type of issue, you know, that's going to come at you. But I think over time, you feel comfortable with approaching different types of patients with different types of backgrounds and attitudes. And, you know, I think what I've realized is you just have to take the time to show them that you are trying to understand what they're going through and that you care about them. And I think it's just about showing that, you know, this is a partnership. This is not me telling them what's best for them and you have to do this or this will happen. But this is about me understanding, you know, how they're coping with the disease and what I can do to help them along the way. Things that I would say are important for somebody who's a doctor is don't talk down to us. You know, for one thing, you know, you may just find that the people that you call patients are just as intelligent and have just as good an education as you do. Medicine, despite what you future doctors might think, is an art. It's not really a science. It's an art that uses scientific method, but it is an art. And without things like caring and honest and open dialogue with patients, I don't think you could ever be as good a doctor as you would be if you had those qualities. Yeah. I think I agree with that. I mean, it's it's one thing to learn pathophysiology of everything and to really know, you know, what you would do in a treatment plan and to be solid on that. But it's it's another thing to be able to execute that and, and to really give everyone the different options to try to understand what's going on in their lives. It's not something that you can learn necessarily, you know, just by reading a textbook. Despite all the changes in medicine, if I had to do it over, I would. Uh, it's a long road, and I think going into it, I knew that. My dad was a doctor, and I did it because of the way I saw how he practiced, and I knew that that's how I wanted to practice too. I mean, he certainly saw patients who didn't have insurance or who had a lapse in insurance. And um, when I was young, I always saw him on the phones with the insurance company and certainly fighting for his patients. So I think with him as a role model, that was easy for me to see that. And I think even despite all the changes that have been going on, good or bad, it wouldn't change what I would do and it wouldn't change what I tell other students either. I think, you know, if this is a passion that you have in terms of helping people, then absolutely, I think it's worth it. It's worth the, the sleepless nights and, um, you know, the long road ahead. I would do it all over. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us. And thank you all for listening. Next time, we'll be fast forwarding in the progression of kidney disease past dialysis, and we'll look at kidney transplantation. It's a story that was a decade in the making. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love our podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Um, Back of the Chart is produced and hosted by Alex Homer and Viknesh Kasturi. Our logo is by Sarah Cooper Johnson. And our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. See you soon.